Analyze Asia is brought to you by Esavel. Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams across Asia Pacific? Then you know how painful that can be. Esavel helps your in-house team by taking cumbersome tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across Asia Pacific from onboarding, procuring devices to real-time IT support and offboarding. With our state-of-the-art platform, gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place. Our team of IT support pros are keen to help you grow. Check out esevel.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code ASIA for 10% off. Terms and conditions apply. If you look at over 30 years, China equities have returned zero. Basically, it's gone up and gone back down to where it was 30 years ago. It was shocking. So the other thing is that hard to believe. I think we're entering a period of even greater uncertainty now than we were six months to a year ago. Opening up is a huge gamble. The markets are rallying right now, like, yeah, China's opening up. Yeah, but at what cost? Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leong, and we are going back to China. With me today, none other than Shai Oster, the Asia Bureau Chief for the Information. And this is the fifth year running to look at the state of China in 2022. Shai, welcome back to the show, and it's that time of the year again. Thanks. It's good to be back. I can't believe it's been five years. In some ways, it feels like it's been a lifetime. In other ways, it feels like it's just yesterday. <laughs> so since our last conversation, what have you been up to? Where are you these days? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, like many people, I have my life has been changed by COVID. We have relocated from Hong Kong and I'm now based in Bangkok. And it's ironic that here I'm actually able to use more of the China based apps than I was in Hong Kong. Lazada, for example, I'm using it on a regular. And I got to say, I'm impressed. It's a good service. <laughs> Huawei's Asia headquarters is also in Thailand, right? I am not sure of that, actually. I, I, it's funny, but the phone company, you see the Chinese brands are pretty big. Huawei, Oppo, Vivo, of course. Apple is bigger than I expected. But on the road, what's happening all of a sudden is I'm seeing a ton of the Chinese EVs all of a sudden, just within the past month or so, maybe because the gasoline prices are soaring. But definitely you're seeing the Chinese presence here on the tech side, although on the political side, there's a whole other, I think, a bit of a decoupling happening there as well. And I guess now that you're in Thailand, so a lot of people have left China, at least the industry observers or foreigners who are living there. So I don't know these days, how do we actually get information from China? Well, honestly, when we were in Hong Kong, we faced the same difficulty. From Hong Kong, it was very difficult to get into China as well, right? Because of the COVID restrictions, which are still in place. Actually, today I was on WeChat with a bunch of my sources. It's still the same techniques we were using before, which is uh, LinkedIn, still an incredibly powerful platform for connecting to so many of the tech and other business elite in China. And then WeChat, Telegram, Signal, WhatsApp. I'm multi-platform, even smoke signals if you need them. So we've been relying on that for a long time, even during COVID, right? Because China has been closed for three years and the flow of people just really stopped. Now, frankly, there are enough people coming out to Singapore and to, to some extent to Bangkok. I got to say our school here, we go to an international school where my kids do, and there's a pretty significant group of China refugees as well. So once the borders open, I don't think it'll matter so much whether you're in Hong Kong or Thailand, wherever there's a cheap flight to get to Beijing is, is going to be the key. You know, and I'm not the only 
person to be based here. It's pretty, it's cheap. The government's welcoming. And there are other interesting tech opportunities here. It's a good market. Recently, I met with some people from Agoda, and uh, it's a different perspective on the China story, on the Asia story. So I'm enjoying that new way to see things. And also, it gives you a new horizon to come down to Southeast Asia as well, because you can go to China and Southeast Asia pretty quickly and see what's going on, right? Exactly, exactly. Now, on the one hand, you see it really is a fragmented market. And I mean, nothing says it more than the fact that Thailand stubbornly has its own time zone compared to its neighbors, right? Singapore probably should also be in a different time zone, but Singapore is in the same time zone as Hong Kong and Beijing. Thailand is its own culture, its own place, which makes it interesting that a company like Alibaba has become integrated and that the BYD and Huawei and others have managed to break into this market. But you do see that it's a fragmented market. Now, Hong Kong was actually a worse place to be in terms of experiencing China tech. You didn't have Didi, really, in Hong Kong. Using Taobao in Hong Kong is a complete pain because it becomes a cross-border transaction. And it's sort of this black hole. You see the little app. You see your parcel going from Hangzhou to the warehouse in Dongguan and instantly like, poop. And then some random dude shows up at your door at 10 o'clock on a Sunday night with like an unmarked box. And you're like, oh, it arrived. Whereas Lazada here is like super professional. Somebody calls you on the phone in English. The packaging is like Amazon quality, carefully done up with bill of ladling. It's a very different experience. But also here I'm able to use Grab for better or worse, Shopee. So I'm actually experiencing the companies that I'm writing about much more than I did in Hong Kong, ironically. Mm, interesting. Lazada is now owned by Alibaba. So... Hmm. I'm going to come to really the main subject of the day, which is yeah. the state of China in 2022. So as of every year, the first question is, what do you get right and wrong about your predictions about China for the year 2022? I think uh, I haven't listened to the old podcast, but you pointed out in, in our messages before that we had predicted that the Sequoia Capital China was going to split off into its own thing. Hmm. Well, I think we have to grade that as a resounding F. We failed on that one. Sequoia Capital, Sequoia China is operating differently than Sequoia Capital Global, right? They're doing this sort of perpetual fund. I almost call it like an investment bank in a sense, right? It just has capital on hand and can do whatever. Whereas Sequoia China has gone off and still in the, the traditional fund structure raised an astonishing $9 billion at the peak of the market really, is when they raised it. And since then, the market has, of course, imploded in an epic way. So we totally got that wrong. But one thing I did flag was uncertainty. I think it's, we may have been talking about that. So that was correct. I'm trying to think what else. The strongest prediction was on Sequoia, and that one was clear, clearly wrong. There's still rumors, but you know, anybody as high profile as Neil Shen and Sequoia, they're going to be like chitter chatter, right? And of that, like 1% might be true. And then there was also the prediction on the IPOs, whether it's going to happen or not. And at that point last year, we were talking about end and bite dance as well. Yeah, well, those aren't going to happen. And remind me, what did I say about Ant and, I, and Didi? I think you also alluded to the fact it really depends on the party congress. Oh, yeah. In October, because it's the third term and then nothing's going to happen before that. And you get that one correct, because... I remember you were saying that be so sure that it's going to happen in the next six months because... Yes. Okay. So I'll give myself a B plus on that. And to give some more color, like no one is expecting any IPOs out of China still. There are still some deals still happening, but they're smaller scale. But the big ones, Ant and Didi and ByteDance, which are the ones that really are locking up billions of dollars. Everyone I talk to says like, no idea, no 
clearer timeline, right? There's occasional reports that like, oh, Ant is in the final stages of negotiating the or settling what the size of the fine might be. Ant is clearly like laying the groundwork for the restructuring according to the government's request. And Didi has also been doing so. But it, in this era right now of common prosperity, the government is in no rush to make people richer than they already are. And so the people that I've been talking to feel that like, well, Ants doesn't really need to raise the money. It's very important to the economy. It's doing well. What does it need to raise the capital for to pay out its investors? Well, that's not the government's priority at this point, right? The government's priority is more about spreading the wealth, the income equality, bringing up the poor, narrowing the gap. The same is true for DD. And so I think the other thing is that the policies were laid out sort of broadly in the party Congress, but we won't know who the actual nitty gritty implementation will happen until March when you actually have the technocrats and bureaucrats who run these different agencies and regulators will actually be appointed to their new jobs. And then you might see some movement, but there's no rush for the government. These guys, right now, the, the country's focus is on the real economy, right? Now, Ant arguably fits that. DD less so and bike dance, it's not really on the priority list for the government. Mm -hmm. I've heard some people suggest that just as much as like the US looks at bike dance with worry about national security because of the influence of TikTok and data security, other questions within China, people I know who have connections or talk to government officials say that the government is actually pretty nervous about by dance as well, or not nervous, but looks at them with a wary eye because it's such a powerful propaganda tool within China, right? It's the primary source of news, Jinru Toutiao, Douyin. If we think that TikTok is powerful, I think that Douyin and Jinru Toutiao are equally or more powerful within China. If you were to put yourself in the shoes of a Chinese bureaucrat, would you really want one of your most important means of mass communication in the hands of a bunch of Wall Street hedge funds? which is effectively what an IPO does. You'd kind of be like, well, well, no, we want this as tightly held as possible. The other question is that from the government's perspective, what's the value of an IPO? You can cash out your investors, you can pay out your employees, you can reward people, but the company from the government's perspective is still able to make money now and can pay dividends and retain top talent without the IPO. This is what I'm relaying like what people have told me is how that perception is. And then there's the other prediction was whether money will move from China to Southeast Asia. I think it, I have mixed results from where I sit because that's actually where all the money flows. But is it true from your point of view? Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, we even just, we just published a story early this week about Hill House Capital, which I think is one of like the flagship investors in China, you know, John Lay. And it's clear that from every, all the sources we've talked to that they're trying to position themselves as like much more than just China, right? They're recruiting in Singapore. They're talking to people about Vietnam. They're looking at the London. They're doing deals in Silicon Valley. Now, that's not to say that they never did these sorts of things before, but it's clear that they're actually ramping that up much more and that they're trying to position themselves as a broader, as more than just a China play. I've also heard of other funds that are trying to reposition themselves even if it's not like a huge shift away from some funds that had been primarily focused on the China market are now looking to set up some sort of like presence in Hong Kong, definitely in Singapore, the private wealth family offices, there's a huge explosion there. And then many of the top entrepreneurs are in Singapore now, 
right? We wrote about Zhang Yiming, ByteDance, right? Now, now there's a legitimate business reason. The CEO of TikTok sits there. But I think there's definitely been a shift. The number of deals in China, at least according to third-party data providers like Frequent and PitchBook has collapsed this year. Definitely, the you look, there's no IPOs. There's just, there, there are no deals is what the VCs on the ground tell you. And partly because the economy is in the doldrums, but also like you couldn't do anything for a long time. Like due diligence was just, you couldn't, you know what I mean? Like you want to meet in a restaurant? Well, no, I'm afraid my app will flash red or you know what I mean? Like, so it's kind of everything just kind of ground to a standstill. I think I want to just go back to some of these key topics and maybe mm. deep dive a little bit. I think the Sokoa China prediction, although it didn't happen this time around, I think based on what you know now, is it just a matter of time or is it just not happening? They're just going to keep with their current structure until the Chinese government comes to you and say, no, maybe you guys need to think about splitting up. Because there's no incentive to anyway. I'm hesitant to, to make a prediction on that. And I don't know. I mean, I was actually looking at PitchBook data on Sequoia's investments. And the interesting thing is that the number of deals, at least according to PitchBook, and of course, they're third party, they're not getting primary access, right? So they're relying on press releases and whatever else. So it's not 100% accurate. But the trend line is clear that the number of deals they've done this year, surprisingly, is the same as it was in 2020. There are done, they've done about 175 deals this year. Sorry, 163 roughly. Mm. In 2020, they did 175. In 2021, which was the peak, they did 330 deals. Also, the check size was much bigger in 2021. That was the peak, right? Everything was going crazy. So they're doing deals. And then I started figuring out, okay, well, what kind of deals are they doing? And it's all in the sweet spot that's aligned with the Chinese government's priorities, which was the so-called real economy. So it's not like a shopping app or entertainment stuff, but a lot of it was enterprise software, a lot of industrial software, robotics, semiconductors for the auto industry, which is like a sweet spot because those tend to be, they're not the sort of high-end semiconductors that can run into export restrictions. They're much more simple, but still have to withstand like high degrees of rattle and heat and whatever. So they are technologically sophisticated, but they're not on the export control list. Autonomous flight, they're in Xi'in, the companies that are based in China, but for the world, which is sort of a broad another trend, a lot of biotech, a lot of design software. So they're much more enterprise oriented. So it's the stuff that like is to build the real economy, to build the businesses, as opposed to like, let's figure out a way to get consumers to spend another 40 minutes looking at their phone every day. One question I asked, like, um, is it really mainly directed towards the choke point pack based on the direction of President Xi or maybe the Little Giants programs? I think one company I think that didn't came out on your radar is YMTC, which is pretty good in memory chips as well. Oh, is Sequoia in them as well? I don't know. I was trying to find out more about YMTC, but I know that they are now pretty having a significant market share. Apple was originally supposed to use their memory chips and then it got yeah. because of that. The challenge for Sequoia and firms like it is that when it comes to like a YMTC is that there's discussion now, very serious discussion in DC about what's called the reverse CFIUS. So basically that the US government, like other governments, can block foreign companies from buying certain, making certain investments that they're deemed national security or potentially harming national security or national interests. Right. And now the thinking is that, well, we want to do something that will 
control American investment overseas. If we don't want Chinese or foreign companies or Russian we call it entities of interest, I forget the exact term, but if we don't want certain countries buying our tech here, why should our money then go and help them make that tech themselves overseas? And so there's talk that there might be restrictions placed on what kind of investments American companies or American investors could do overseas. And that's been trundling along. That's been in discussion for a long time. The House is going to be flipped to the Republicans. They're very hawkish on China. So there might be some more moves and definitely more scrutiny on what U.S. investors are doing in China. In fact, when we wrote a story about our story about my colleague Juro Sawa's story about Sequoia China raising $9 billion. That triggered some consternation within the Biden administration, at least that's according to a reporting by Semaphore. It made us feel very proud. Mm-hmm. But, and so that kind of spurred more of this discussion about like, well, why are, should we put controls on what American money does overseas? And so I don't know. I think biotech seems to be safe. I think many of these things will probably be okay. And even when there are export controls, by the way, it's not like everything gets banned. All it means is that to access certain technologies, you need a license. And you can get the license, right? I think the journal mm-hmm. is a great, an interesting story that I think was it about more than 90% of the licenses are granted, right? Because you can show legitimate use and whatever, you, there's a way to, to satisfy these requirements. Within China, mm-hmm. there are restrictions on what foreigners can invest in as well. Mm. Based on my understanding, it's only the 1% of the semiconductors that's maybe below, say, five nanometers downwards where it, or the AI chips where it's really groundbreaking. But the other 99% of it is really not that significant on that. I, I don't know sometimes when you get all these semiconductor walls between different sides of both sides of the house, you're really trying to work out whether is it really that important. Just one more thing to close mm. out on Sequoia Capital. Just now when, at the start of the podcast, you were, say, you were alluding to the fact that Sequoia Capital is becoming like an investment bank. So they also have their version of Little Princeton's program too. <laughs> so are they... Is Sequoia China is going to follow what the Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley does in the 2000s to the 2020s? No, no. I, you're alluding to a story we did about the daughter of former vice premier, yeah, Wang Yang, being a sort of a partner or type of partner at Sequoia China. She had been a banker for quite a while, so she has she had a prior career, and it's an unusual hire, sure that they. Because typically the traditional role of the princelings within the Chinese investment ecosystem is government relations and relations with the big SOEs, big state-owned firms. Venture capital doesn't play in that space so much. So typically you'd see like the private equity firms would be the ones that have the big princeling connections, right? Not so much the VC because being a princeling doesn't give you access to the smartest kid out of Stanford who's coming back to Beijing. So that was... I think that was an exception, not the rule. Now, there are princelings around and people say like, look, she's not the only one. There's a ton of these people around. But I don't think they play the same role or have the same importance as they do in the private equity, the late stage deals where that guanxi really matters. Because the guanxi that you need for a good VC is like, do you have the Stanford pipeline of here's the latest mega nerd AI guy or woman coming out and like, my dad fought it in with Mao Zedong doesn't necessarily give you access to that Stanford nerd profile, right? I think so this is something that probably is the exception of the rule. But then the second part is I wanted to ask you to dive a little bit deeper with funds moving from China outside, maybe to Southeast Asia, India, or Europe. I think the Hill House Capital 
thing that you were talking about earlier is focusing on Europe and Southeast Asia. What is the likely impact on China and also to these regions of interest when a company like Hill House Capital showed up? I think there's also like Renaissance Cap. So I think they haven't started moving yet. They're still based in Hong Kong, if I didn't remember. As far as I know, they're still based there. I don't know. Mm. They're probably looking as well. It's a good tip. I'll follow it up. (laughs) (laughs) Good question. (laughs) <laughs> Thanks. So, so there's a couple of things. So Chinese entrepreneurs have been going overseas out of China for a while because China is such a competitive place that like, well, screw this, let's go out, right? But the China growth story has changed. It's still the world's biggest country and it's the second largest GDP and all these things. And so there's still going to be money to be made. But the days of like every year the internet population triples or, you know what I mean? Like that's over. The market's fairly saturated in terms of internet penetration. So all the easy growth is gone. There was a period where basically you you would print money by investing in China tech, but just because like every year another 50 million people bought a phone. And so your market size just, you know, double, whatever, right? That's gone. And so people have been looking overseas. Now, I think the impact is going to be a lot of entrepreneurial talent is going to be going out of China, which has already been happening, right, to some extent. And then investment talent. And that's these aren't necessarily bad things. Like they might drive up the prices. I don't know that Southeast Asia can absorb all the billions of dollars that were headed towards China, just because it's a, relatively speaking, a smaller market. But I think we should see a lot of growth happening here. The other thing is that Chinese money it's kind of funneled into Southeast Asia and the Middle East because it's blocked in India, right? The natural place for Chinese money and entrepreneurs to go is close to them. Not entirely close. Like Tencent, I think as an investor, you can still participate in there. But as I think it's a very fraught relationship. So definitely Southeast Asia. The other place that's been growing in interest is the Middle East, where you're beginning to see crypto guys and men and women who are from China sort of migrated to Hong Kong and then to Singapore, and now they're all in Dubai. And also the AI, one of the AI companies that, for example, were blacklisted by the US are now forging relationships in the Middle East as well. And so what you're going to see is the dissemination of the Chinese model. So there's two things. The, the money is largely Western money, right? It's still going to be the CalPERS and the whatever, the Wall Street money that's just being disseminated more broadly. But the talent and the uh, sort of business and models that were successful in China are now being disseminated more broadly. So that I think will be interesting. I don't know that they'll succeed everywhere, but I think overall it, it should be an improvement. I'll give another example from where I am. Right? Internet banking in Thailand is pretty good because they rose to the challenge of competing against Chinese companies. And so when you go to do payments here, whether it's online or at a supermarket, you have like a choice of like seven different things to scan your QR code with, right? And so having this Chinese talent and Western money pour in can actually spur indigenous innovation as well. It's not necessarily that, it's not that local innovation will be crushed necessarily. Depends how like local countries react, right? If they see the opportunity and try to like tap into it as opposed to like fight against it. Speaking of VC firms, I remember GV Capital has mm. a setup in Southeast Asia and they actually rarely invest in the region as compared to their recent write down on the edutech companies in China. I mean, I did have a meeting with Jenny Lee when she was in Singapore and I asked her, what's the point of having a Southeast Asia outfit? And then it was like 
at that point in time, before all the edu tech companies collapse, they say it's just a hedge. But after that happened, they still haven't moved in. So I'm wondering, is it really that if things are not doing well for China, they will still double down there rather than taking their money and coming to a region like Southeast Asia because it's multi-country, it feels more like Europe rather than homogeneous market, like, you know, oh, how they think oh, about the US. I think GV is the bad example because they're, they really are doing a lot in the US now. So I think a lot of the founders have connections. A lot of the partners have connections to Singapore, right? Jenny mm. herself, I think mm. some of the big guys in mainland are, so maybe that's like part of it. It's not, it's not a bad place. Singapore isn't a bad place to establish some of the financial infrastructure of a fund. It's mm. not a bad place to raise capital. The Singapore has a lot of billionaires and it gives you access as well to the India tycoons. So that makes sense, right? And not necessarily. So, and, and I'm surprised actually because they have such deep roots that they haven't made more of an of, of a move. But it seems that thematically they've made a choice to look more at the U.S. in recent years. I mean. Mm. Yeah, they've been hedging their bets. They were among the earliest, actually, to begin hedging their bets uh, more broadly than China. So th they're an interesting case. I don't quite know. I haven't dissected specifically with them, like, okay, what was the thinking on this? I think it may have ended up protecting them quite a bit. I think that's fair. Then the other thing is just now, as you said, the congregation of talent and money into Southeast Asia from China. I know I actually get the chance of actually meeting the founder of Era7, which is a blockchain gaming company that's founded by a Chinese tech entrepreneur in the gaming space. But he was actually a OG in the Chinese gaming scene. And now he's like the top gaming token in Binance Exchange. It's becoming interesting to me, like the amount of Chinese influence that's going to come into Southeast Asia. I still feel a little bit different in the sense that when you talk to Chinese tech companies in Singapore versus you talk to American tech companies in Singapore, there's still a very big gap. And the gap of localization has not shifted that much. Let's say I'm using an ERP system from China, okay? Mm. And it's being plagued with a lot of cybersecurity problems compared to if I would pick a similar American solution who has gone to this market and they used to refuse to change, but I think recently they became a bit more localized. They start to get all the correct certifications. And because of the fact that the China is depending on its own independent ecosystem. So what surprises me was Microsoft 365 is not supported in China. So they're relating back to the 2016 and 2019 version of that. We are in Singapore, we are already moving on to Office 365. When that happens, when vulnerabilities happen, when we try to get them to patch, they are like, no, you know, you do not understand. In China, we do this. This is exactly the same thing I used to get from American companies. This is what we used to do in the US, but that gap hasn't changed. Yes, they expanded overseas, but their understanding of localization of markets is still similar to the Americans, ironically, that everything works in China should work everywhere. That lesson was a hard lesson for the Americans to learn. And arguably, they failed in China. Amazon's success or failure in China wasn't because of government intervention, remember? Mm. Or was eBay back in the day, right? It was because Jack Ma just figured out the payments problem before they did. And so that localization, the realization that localization and how to do it, where you still have a standard product and standard systems, but you're able to be flexible. That was a long learning process for American MNCs. 
The other thing is that I think Chinese companies, broadly speaking, are very hierarchical, very leader-driven. On the flip side, let's take C, right? C Limited. Is that a Chinese company or a Singaporean company, right? Forest Lee, what do you call them? Kind of Chinese, kind of Singaporean. So much of their engineering sits in the mainland, the video game developers. So that's actually an example of really good localization. Part of Shopee's success was like, figuring out like, okay, we need to use whatever local celebrity to work. Now, granted, like it's not like some of the shine is worn off on that stock, but like they did a pretty good job in like figuring out local markets. And the, the biggest example of success is ByteDance, taking a very Chinese product and becoming the most high visited destination on the net, right? And that's all about localization. I mean, what is more local than culture? An influencer, like a Chinese influencer and an American influencer, I have a lot of props to them and the ability to have figured out, you know, and people write about the frictions they've had internally. Well, well sure, it's a huge company. It has over 100,000 people. But it, I think it's, so it's shown that it's possible for Chinese companies to, to do pretty well with this sort of flexibility and localization. I'm trying to think of other examples. I mean, we'll look at Xiaomi, right? And the hardware, and Vivo and building out these incredible networks of they've learned how to distribute hardware in developing countries and sort of adapt it. Selling a cell phone in Indonesia is different than in India, is different than in Thailand. But they've actually shown, I think, some of the companies have shown pretty sophisticated understanding of local markets. Now, of course, there'll always be examples in the other direction. But I think the fact is that ByteDance really stands out as such a success. Now, mm. I think the other thing the on the flip side, this touches on the theme that Chinese software as an export is an emerging theme this year, a lot in particularly enterprise and robotics. Companies that are for export only, right? Especially because SaaS software is the market in China is still a really tough one. So there you're seeing a lot of Chinese companies that are really looking to leverage domestic talent, computer talent for the foreign market. And to me, that's really fascinating because this is sort of like the next step in rise going up the value chain, right? It's like China used to be the factory floor. Well, now it's going to be the computer engineering floor. And it's going to be different than I think than what you see in India with sort of the computer outsourcing business. I think these aren't just companies that are filling in the code for somebody else's product, although that happens as well. But these are actually entrepreneurs or innovative products that are being trying to be built for the world, as opposed to an American or foreign company says, well, can you do this kind of code for us? So as you were just giving me all the examples that they can localize, right? Do you notice that they are all consumer companies? Right, right. Well, Shein, sorry, I forgot. The other yeah. huge example is Shein, right? That's right. So so it's, it's not, not referring to so much on the consumer internet side. I think they, uh, they have definitely exported yeah. it. But I'm thinking a lot more on the enterprise side where they are very localized in China such that their solution is not portable when it goes out. Yeah. And the yeah. other problem, which I had this conversation with Lily, I think last year as well, is that the Chinese enterprise SaaS market doesn't exist. Right. So because it didn't exist and also because they don't do a lot of open source software, so you don't see a lot of open source innovations. And that is also part of the contributing factors because if you are living in a Tencent ecosystem, good luck, you're not going to go into... I mean, there used to be this wall gardens between Ali and Tencent, but I know now everybody must open their APIs. But that specific component of it does drive a lot why their enterprise software is not in such a good state. 
which is now they're chasing up and they're trying to export it out, which the market outside has doesn't accept because I think they still looked at the USS software as the gold standard. Right. And frankly, there's also paranoia. Am I really going to like, it's one thing for, for an American to buy a shirt off of Shein, right? Because frankly, I'm buying on Amazon. It's coming from the same factory. It's another thing for a company to say, well, here we're going to give our mission critical software to some relatively unknown Chinese company. And given the paranoia now, right? I'm not suggesting that there's justified or unjustified, right? You can make mm -hmm. that decision yourself. And I've heard of actually of deals where like companies that were trying to do sort of in-store security, leveraging Chinese expertise and machine vision, had deals lined up with major American multinationals or retailers. And at the last minute, companies were like, you know what? We really don't want our critical infrastructure, critical software in the hands of some Chinese company. First of all, if it gets out, it's going to be terrible. The optics of it might be bad for the brand. It's tough. On the other hand, though, the robotics guys are doing well, especially warehouse robotics. Well, there again, because like I guess a warehouse is a warehouse. Who knows <laughs> Nobody's better? there. Well, no, but think about like who's mastered logistics on a, on a massive scale more than like somebody who's working for Alibaba. You got to know how to move stuff quick, right? So, and there, some of these companies are doing pretty well with tapping into, especially in the Asian market. There's also some data analytics companies, but again, like data analytics isn't really dealing with corporate culture, right? It's not like a ERM, here's a bunch of numbers and I'm going to crunch them. And also that's kind of software. It doesn't sit in the cloud. It sits on the client computer. There's no connection. Once it's deployed, it doesn't feed back into the, the mainland. Yeah. I still have two areas that I want to just dive a little bit deeper before we mm. go into the main prediction side. I think you are probably one of the few people who understand a lot about the public markets and because of your background. So I'm thinking of 2023 now. So those IPOs that we talk about that were supposed to happen this year, I think, I mean, everything seems to be already set in stone. Our presidency has getting his third term and they're starting to relax all the COVID zero policy because of the ongoing protests, right? Where would all of them list? Is it going to be Hong Kong Stock Exchange or is it going to be the Shanghai Starbucks? And what would be the factors that drive these companies? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Starboard, I don't know if Starboard, but because that's turned out to have some problem of its own. But broadly speaking, some a company like Ant would probably do a, do a listing in Shanghai and Hong Kong, whenever that happens, which I, I just don't have visibility into it. I don't think the company does either, right? I think there's still so much uncertainty. ByteDance is a bigger question. Their fate is now... The U.S. National Security Review is still ongoing. Wall Street Journal recently reported that like, there's like, renewed questions about it. As I said, House Republicans, Republicans more broadly, are, are looking to block it. So God knows what. But you know, even with the Chinese rules, it would be, able to, be very unlikely to be able to list in the U.S. So if, there's, if ByteDance manages to figure it out and like, well, what would the IPO, the whole thing with the IPO, just the overseas business, I, like, there's just so many questions that are unanswered at this point, would most likely be a Hong Kong because the investors are, you also have to look at who the investors are, right? And who needs an exit? Domestic IPO is the problem with it's you can't you can get your money out. For example, Ninebot has did a domestic IPO and I believe Sequoia was able to cash out some, but you have to it's a long process, take half a year or whatever. It requires approvals, you have to pay fees to get it offshore. It's not like I list in New York and I sell. All I gotta worry about is can I get a nice price for my shares, right? 
So at the end of the day, like most Western investors are going to want an IPO, an exit in a market that's liquid and easy to move, right? So that's got to be under the current climate, that's really only going to be Hong Kong because the China still has sorts of extra layer of restrictions on companies that have data on a massive scale. I just don't know when. The other thing is that the Hong Kong market is, it's kind of rebounded. But like, if you look at the overall, there was a chart that I, someone shared with me that like over 30 years, China equities have returned zero. Basically, it gone up and gone back down to where it was 30 years ago. It's like, it was shocking. So the other thing is that like, hard to believe, I think we're entering a period of even greater uncertainty now than we were six months to a year ago. Opening up is a huge gamble. Like the markets are rallying right now, like, yeah, China's opening up. It's clear that it's going to open up. Yeah, but at what cost? Anecdotally, here's some things to watch out for. The real estate market's still kind of weak. Local governments are broke. I have friends who were providing technical services for local governments. And at a certain point, the government just said, we can't pay you anymore. Sorry, here's a medal for your service. So local governments are still broke. And then two more points is that wages are suddenly spiking. Friends mm -hmm. of mine in the service industry in China, because everyone's so scared, and I don't know how long this will last, but like this similar situation happened in, in the US after opening up. So the wages are suddenly spiking, but there's a weird thing where like, Everyone's allowed to like self-isolate, isolate at home if you get COVID. But most workers live in dorms, not just the factory workers, but the entire Chinese service sector. So all your delivery people, all your waiters and waitresses, the clerks in every store, probably all the logistics workers in every factory, they're all living in dormitories. So once this thing starts ripping through the dorms, even if people aren't dying, right, they're just like, eh. I'm not feeling really good. You're going to have a really couple wonky couple of months, I suspect. Like you saw it even in Foxconn. They had to pay more money to get people to come. Please stay in the factory. So we might see a period of wage inflation. The other thing is then for the IPOs, was, this is a very interesting analysis from a former TMT. And also I was talking to a saying, look, common prosperity means that your profit margins are now regulated by the government. So like you cannot make a windfall profit. And the whole point why people would invest in these mega platforms is because they effectively have, oh, it's the network. The network effect is a nice way to say like you're a monopoly, right? That's gone. And he was saying that even more so because the government is so interested in the real economy that enterprise software is probably going to face even more regulations because how can you be squeezing profits from companies that are employing people? That's right. So I thought, wow, this is really interesting. So like your, your EBITDA is now like a political question. How much can we charge that's too much, right? Are we, you gotta like, we can't be too profitable, but we can't be not profitable. It's like, oh my God, wow. <laughs> so, which is also explains why the stock for all these tech companies are still like trending low in, because people don't really know where this is really going. There's one more thing I want to ask. Based on what you're thinking now, will Apple and Tesla be forced to leave China? No. Given so much tensions and so much issues on Taiwan. No. I, 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 look, I can't imagine it. That doesn't mean it can't happen. Just because I'm too stupid to be able to see the complexities doesn't mean that there's somebody not working on this. It's clear. No, you, you are one of the smartest people I know. So oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. You got to hang out with a better crowd, dude. But Apple is interestingly already hedging its bets. It was fascinating for me to see that output in its factories in India has ramped up faster than expected. 
but it's still on the margins. It's much less than what's in China. And like it's, but it's happening, right? Uh, TSMC's new fab in Arizona, again, as a percentage of the overall market, it's really, it's not going to move the needle, but it's the beginning. It has to start someplace. So I, definitely Apple is looking to diversify it broaden out its supply chain. Ironically, not ironically, but like, even though you put, you assemble something in India, so many of the components are still coming from China. It's just 30 years of building up Dongguan and Shenzhen and all these huge concentrated supply chain behemoths. It's kind of hard to replicate that. Plus, China still has, despite like the labor, the shrinking labor pool, it still has one of the biggest flexible pools of labor. Where Apple, Apple doesn't always have the same number of workers in its factory, right? It ramps up, it ramps down. And that's hard to do because we're talking about like millions more and millions less. So I think they're there for the long run. And Tesla, I think, is actually also, I mean, Tesla's biggest problem isn't the government, it's BYD. Right. It's the it's and as I said, like it's Neo and Xpeng, like just all of a sudden, like I'm here in a fairly affluent neighborhood of Bangkok, a sort of a suburb. And I was surprised, like coming from Hong Kong, where Teslas are like the Ford Fiesta of Hong Kong. <laughs> Everybody's got a Tesla, right? You got it on like that. It's super subsidized and you can get the buyback program. Oh, great. I got a Tesla. Everybody had a Tesla. I had Tesla envy. Literally like five of my friends had Teslas. No Teslas here. And then the past couple of weeks, suddenly I'm seeing BYDs and all these other domestic brands I've never heard of, Chinese company, Chinese electric vehicles. And so Tesla's issue is going to be that, cheaper rivals. The other thing is that from the Chinese government's perspective, Tesla and Apple have done, contributed so much to the development of the domestic industry, right? Apple has built a supply chain and the supply chain, look, all the assemblers, right? Yeah, it used to be just Pegatron and Foxconn, the Taiwanese companies. But that's changing, right? More and more of the Chinese companies are becoming major assemblers, plus all so many of the components. Again, the auto industry as well. The auto industry, Tesla is buying stuff locally. It's training people. It's building up this all this expertise, right? Without Apple, you wouldn't have, I don't think, Vivo or Xiaomi for sure, or potentially even Huawei, right? So these companies, I think it's been, it's. I hate to use the expression, but it's really been win-win, right? Companies have been able to, enjoy the benefits of a relatively cheap, highly trained and educated workforce with stable power supplies. And China has benefited from technology transfer. It's the old model that Zhurongji built back in the 80s, I believe, sort 90s with Beijing Jeep, right? Mm. But President Xi might change everything. This may be all upended in a day. You know, that's the thing. The kind of people smarter than me are like, well, yeah, but it all comes down to the whim of one guy. But again, new opening was happening the second I saw Xi Jinping and President Biden backslapping when they met at the APEC meeting masks were off they were touching each other and I thought oh okay that's a signal that opening is definitely going to happen this is a guy who's been basically cloistered for the past three years and he was like physically confront you know even though it was interesting because all of his team was still masked up but there was Joe and C palling around mm. so now the final question. What are your right. predictions in 2023? Oh, yeah, yeah. I should have prepared more for this one, but I really feel <clears throat> it's so hard to say. Okay, I'll make some predictions that I'm pretty sure will, will be wrong, but at least I need to make them. I do think investors really want an exit on ByteDance. And so something will happen with TikTok. So, you know, if the markets recover enough, if there's more stability... I expect some kind of ByteDance IPO, most likely 
something that's just going to be the international business with clever workarounds to maintain, keep the data in one silo, but keep all the algorithms in another silo. I predict that we won't see an IPO from Didi. I don't think Didi will relist. I think they're still in some kind of weird political purgatory. I see no signs on that. And then I think I predict that by the time there is any likelihood, their market share might be significantly different. I'm going out on a limb here. And then... Ant? Ant. Ant's a tough one. They will list probably this year as well. Probably in in the fourth quarter is my guess. And it's going to be... But it's a very different animal than it was before, right? It's not going to be the world's biggest ever IPO. It's going to be an IPO of a pretty good bank. Mm. So you've done the IPO segment, more money out of China to Southeast Asia and the rest of the world, the global South? Yes. I think something changed in the past 12 months for many people who are long-term China bulls. And the DD stuff and then education and then the Shanghai lockdown traumatized people profoundly. And then the insanity with what happened more recently is really like just people are really traumatizing, like rebuilding that trust. I think the covenant has been broken for many people who were really just all in on China. And now they're like, I just don't know. Right. So rebuilding that will take a couple of years. Now, granted, crazier things have happened in China and investors have come back, but it took a couple of years. And also it happened at a time when more broadly, everything was in China's favor, right? And now the the demographic dividend is over, right? It's not the same. So I think the shift to look elsewhere, I think will continue. The wild card is what happens with COVID now. And that's just, there's no way, right? They could get lucky, right? This could just be just a bad cold, right? Mm -hmm. And... Once it's over and everyone's got like some natural herd immunity, everybody gets feels good again. But like right now, when you talk to people, the mood is glum. I mean, like just the investors that I talk to, they're just depressed and like, well, I'm going to Singapore and screw this. I don't trust them anymore. What I'll build something and they'll take it away. Right. Remember, like the worst, the biggest crackdowns happened before the COVID lockdowns. The tech scene was feeling was kind of getting its butt kicked before the nation went kind of bonkers. So there, I think that's still happening and it's going to be hard to reverse that. So it's a big country, lots of innovation. Oh, the other, the other interesting thing was, this is expressed to me by another very prominent Chinese entrepreneur VC. He said, look, what's all the excitement stuff? Where's the excitement now happening? I thought Mm -hmm. Silicon Valley with these AI things. But I thought China was supposed to be the AI victor, right? They had like, all they have like some of the best minds in AI, ByteDance and all these other things. And yet, like the most exciting tech right now, the things that everybody like China is a chat GPT or whatever the heck that is, telling machines how to draw. And it's clear that like these are transformative technologies, really transformative technologies. And he was saying, like, look, why is it that the Chinese haven't done this? We have obviously so much talent. How come it's coming out of Silicon Valley, even though Silicon Valley is supposed to be dead? It's supposed to be over. Interesting. So do you think that there is a Chinese renaissance of that? Or are you just saying that because of the doom and gloom now? That's the problem. Our perception is always colored by your current experience. A year ago, or two years ago, China was ascendant. China's GDP was going to surpass the United States. And like everything was rosy and shiny. No one saw 
these lurking dangers. So I think we we can it's very easy to make the mistake of like projecting your current situation into the future, your current or cloud your vision being clouded by situation now. However, there is momentum and people relocating out of a country taking their it doesn't just mean yeah money's fungible and the money can come in and out but people aren't right mm-hmm. when you when a fund sends sends its partners overseas they're bringing their kids and the wife may not necessarily want to move back in the next couple of years cuz like well junior's about to go in the, into middle school and that's a tough time to train you know what i mean so it's going to be tough to correct cuz it took the it took a long time it took a couple of years for these decisions to happen and it's going to take a couple of years for the decisions to be unwound, even if the situation on the ground improves, even if suddenly the economy rebounds, investor con- consumer confidence is back, all these things, other factors are rule of law seems to be on the up and no cry, whatever. But like the decisions have been made and they're going to be hard to undo. Mm. I think this is actually a very good place to stop. But Shai, when you're in town, we should hang out for a drink and maybe I could even get you in the spring or another round of chat. So many thanks for coming on the show and thank you for doing this for the fifth year. And I think every year we have a lot of interesting banter thinking about what's going to be the next year is going to be, but I hope for a better year for us, of course. Any recommendations that inspire you recently? Oh gosh, I have been on a uneducated binge right now i've been too busy to come up for air too busy to read anything other than for work okay so of course the last question how do my audience find you definitely at the information everybody knows you they're always looking forward to this episode oh great thank you yeah definitely at the information shy spelled s-h-a-i at the information.com I'm also on Twitter at Beijing Scribe. Look, it's an old handle from back in the day when I was based there. And uh, my DMs are open. So reach out and uh, look forward to hearing from anybody with tips. As I jokingly say, if you have an axe to grind, I have a grindstone. No, but that's (laughs) that's perhaps too cynical of of a view. But uh, definitely looking forward to this. It's really interesting to be here in Southeast Asia. And just as a total aside, like near my gym in the morning, I actually hear more Mandarin now. There's a bunch of like these like <laughs> Beijing, Lautaro, and they're just sitting there like, Kan Dashan, well, Gallus on you. It's just sitting there like they're exercising while smoking cigarettes with the shirts rolled up over their It's just like, wow, I have my own little corner of a Beijing hutong right here in Bangkok. Don't worry, you actually get that a lot also in Singapore as well. But I like the self-deprecating humor, just now that you're talking about the Christian, but I'll leave it as such. Definitely you can find us at any podcast platform we are testing some of the episodes with video as well. And of course, tweet to me at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E, Asia. And of course, we look forward to the next year. Shai, many thanks for coming on the show. And I look forward to speak to you again. All right, take care. Thanks a lot.